You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. How are you? Doing great. Good. We've got um, an interesting guest today. We've already done Boys Part 1 and no sooner did we do it and we thought we wanted to explore this subject further. And we were kind of intrigued by the series of articles that were released in Quillette. And um, Angus Fox is the writer and we are delighted that uh, Angus has made his time to come on our podcast. So you're very welcome, Angus. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I will. Um, I suppose that the best thing I would say is that I'm an accidental journalist. I've accidentally become a journalist because of transgenderism, which is not a sequence of things I ever expected to come out of my mouth at all. Um, I, I work elsewhere in academia, and really this is a COVID story. So COVID hit, work dropped off a cliff, watching too much Benjamin Boyce, yeah i mean you can fall into that channel it's a very good channel you know um and i suppose i started to come across things which really worried me and then i don't know what are we 12 months i suppose on i've now got to the point where i'm kind of full-time working with parents of young men who identify as trans so i wrote uh, this long series of articles, and I also conducted a survey into parents' points of views, and and I'm not sure it's it's like a roller coaster. You don't quite know what turn is coming up next, and I've just abandoned myself to it at this point. I'm like, I've, I've got no idea what's coming next in my life. This is just, you know, I didn't expect to be writing about this or anything of the sort, but here we are. And yeah. I, I think you've you've written as a pseudonym, isn't that yes. right? Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, as I say, my work has dropped off a cliff, but I do kind of want to leave the door open. And as you know, I mean, in the universities, that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do if you've involved yourself in this debate. Plus, then there's all the usual stuff that people get, their families get, and so forth. So... Kathleen Stock has written a lot extensively about this, that an awful lot of academics, especially in universities all over the world, really, get very badly um, vilified, really, for um, wrong, wrong think, really. Yeah. Well, there's another, there's something else I'd like to say about anonymity, which is I've seen the same pattern a few times now where somebody will be kind of just, you know, commenting and they're behind a username and it's not necessarily their real name. Someone else will come along and say, well, who are you? You know, we don't know who you are. What are your motivations? So this individual, the first one will say, okay, well, here's who I am. And the response is never, 
oh, thank you for your earnest. <laughs> you know, you're, you're being so earnest. Now let's sit down calmly and have a civil conversation. It's like, right, lads, get in. You know, it's not exactly meant in earnest. So I kind of feel this might sound a bit pious and I don't know, holier than thou, but I do feel like the story is the story. Like tell the story, let the story speak. And that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And you, you've also mentioned that you do come to this story from a, a perspective. I mean, you're not, um, in, in all honesty, you're not just this completely neutral party that is trying to show both sides of a heated debate. Mm-hmm. You have kind of an underlying perspective on what you suspect might be going on or what's mm-hmm. troubling you. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then maybe you can share what your methods were as you put together this journalism piece. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's really important for people to talk about their biases because in my view, and I don't know the extent to which you would both agree with this, we're living in an era where all journalists pretend that they're neutral. And they're kind of not. Most of them are. There are a few. Um, So I wanted to be clear about that. Um, I suppose my biases are several. One is that I'm gay, so I kind of do see this from a certain point of view. Um, Also, I think that it's funny. I was talking to Stella about this when we first met, that I do wonder if my subconscious mind was playing along because I did not go into this thinking, oh, I would have done this. I would definitely have thought I was transgender. Now I am 100% sure because if you draw a sort of Venn diagram, if you like, of the factors which are leading these young men to to believe this about themselves, I would be in the epicenter, right? Absolutely in the epicenter. So possibly there was that as well. Like I I do instinctively have a bias in favour of defending the best interests of these young men, I think, because I do see myself in them. So my methods in writing this piece, I mean, it's quite a long story. I joined this forum. It took a long time for people to trust me, which is completely understandable. And when I say long time, I mean like, oof, four months of sort of posting messages and sharing clips and people slowly building up trust in this parent community. People are so scared that you, you almost have to mine down through layers of pseudonyms that, you know, you'll get to, by the time you know them, you're on the third name and it's their actual name, you know? (laughs) Um, So eventually after, you know, building a few relationships, meeting a few activists, different people, I was allowed to go into a Zoom support group and these mothers of the boys were just desperate to be heard because they felt in many ways that the boys were getting left behind. Um, And so what I started to do was to um, interview them one by one. Nothing happened for a long time. And then what happened is I did an interview with somebody who I think went back to the rest of the group and said, it's fine. He's, you know, he's not an activist. Um, And so I started to kind of piece together these stories. Uh, I did it in such a way that I would write up the interview. I recorded the interview with, obviously with the permission of the person I was talking to, wrote it up and I showed it to them, which is quite unusual, I think. Apparently, it's not in Germany. I've learned in all of this that the normal thing to do in Germany is to 
to sh- if you do an interview with somebody is to show that interview to the person so they can check. So it right. was important to me that they knew it wasn't going to be a hit piece. They knew it wasn't going to be me kind of throwing them under the bus and saying, well, actually you're a terrible parent. Um, the other thing to say about the method is that, you know, any one of these parents going through this difficult experience, they can all write whatever they like. But the blunt truth is nobody wants to read 14 different stories, which are 70% the same story. People get bored. Um, Particularly when it's traumatic, heavy stuff, people get, you know, exhausted. They kind of get like, uh, what's the term? Compassion fatigue. So I had to find some way of, drawing out of each story what I thought was the key element, like the most, the thing that really jumped out at me and then put those together. So it was a bit awkward sometimes because somebody would come and say to me, you know, you won't believe what happened to me with this therapist. And I would say, sorry, I've kind of got that, you know, Um, which is a tough thing for them to hear. And I could imagine what that, could you just kind of elucidate about that? Because I could imagine what that little therapist anecdote is. Oh, it's always the same thing. It's that, yeah. So they went to the doctor. The doctor said, I am not touching this. Why don't you go to a gender clinic? So they're going to sent off to the gender clinic. They think that the, the kid is going to come out saying things about the OCD or the eating disorder or the depression that's been going on for some time or the break with the friendship group or whatever it is. And then actually the therapist comes out and says, So her name is Maya now, and we're using she pronouns. And if we don't, then there's a 44% chance that she'll kill herself. And the parents are just, they always use the same metaphor, which is vehicle collision. Hit by a bus, hit by a car, come off the road. They always, it's just like, it's so sudden. Yeah, juggernaut, it's so sudden. It's so, it's like, bam, and it hits them. And... Very often coupled with that is that they find out that at school this has been going on for some time. Um, So already there might be certain friends using certain words or even teachers using certain words. Um, So, sorry, yeah. And I think the school counsellors can also play a really big role because I think sometimes the child has been attending the school counsellor's office without the parent's knowledge and there as well, rather than exploring what might be going on, the counselors are showing them, you know, videos about trans girls and kind of what I see is somewhat propaganda mm. oh, uh, well, materials. One of, one of the uh, boys whose mothers I interviewed, whose mother I interviewed, uh, this boy's really, really good at mathematics. And it turned out that the the counsellor had just been pulling this child out of mathematics lessons to do what's it called GSA and kind of essentially to just do trans advocacy work with this kid and to say, you know, this is how we help you to navigate such and such with your family, with your friends and all the rest of it. And this kid, you know, as you know, a lot of these boys are prodigiously intelligent. This kid's intelligence was in mathematics. So they're really, you know, it's quite disastrous when you look at it in that way and you think about the implications for college and onward learning and they're just that does not seem to be the focus of the schools so you you interviewed a lot of parents in the end 
well, yes, because they were quite long interviews. They're about two hours each. Um, I think I interviewed about 20, a couple of couples, um, mainly women, mainly women. Um, and some of them were, it's, 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 I think the phrase I use is that it never repeats, but it rhymes. It's not ever exactly the same thing. There are always slight differences in these stories, but it just keeps on coming back at you that you start to build this sort of prototype of this young man and you can, you can draw him, you can understand him very, very easily. And of course, as I said, like, I, I think I would have been one of these. So I've got that as well. So, yeah, so I think it was just, it was probably 18 or so, I think. I, I, I run uh, support meetings for the GDSN, the Gender Dysphoria Support Network. And I too, like, very much came out of uh, out of COVID as well, that I had spare time. And so we started running them in a very low-key way, just kind of, oh, we'll see where this goes. And then the parents of the boys came in and you're right, they were paranoid and they were like, everybody's sexualizing our boys and, I don't think the right story, the narrative is wrong. And when you say the prototype and it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, it was uncanny. Mm -hmm. Week after week after week, mm -hmm. a new parent would come in and they'd start talking about their boy and I'd go, oh, I know yeah. this, I know this. I, I can I, fill in yeah. all these gaps. I started, started finishing sentences in, in my head, like somebody would start a sentence and I'd be like, yeah, I know how this is going to end now, really Absolutely quickly. Absolutely uncanny. And I was messaging Sasha, you quite a lot, kind of go, whoa, whoa, this is really such, like you say, a prototype. Yeah, there's, there's, there's differences, but by God, there's some very strong themes. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, what you're, 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 you did a survey, am I right, of something like 185 parents or something? Yeah, so the survey kind of was slightly before, although I actually don't think I got the results until... I would say I was about a third of the way through the interviewing. So it was an overlapping process, which was probably a good thing in the end. Um, and it was almost exactly two to one female to male. So in terms of the children. So I surveyed parents and it was, what I wanted to do was I wanted to investigate what everyone was saying or the parents of the boys were saying, which is there's something else going on with the boys. It's not quite the same. So I wanted to nail exactly what that was. And there was some really interesting stuff which came out of that, which I think you wouldn't necessarily guess. Um, so the survey, uh, I asked them all sorts of questions. And I, uh, one of the things which was most interesting is I said, you know, what do you think is influencing your child in this? And there were differences between boys and girls. So girls are more likely to be influenced, according to their parents, who may or may not be correct, by LGBT societies by girls. Boys are more likely to be influenced by girls. I think that's not quite the right way to say it. It's more that they're more likely to have female friendship groups than the girls are to have male friendship groups. So it's almost a, a group feature. There's some interesting stuff, for example, that there's no seemingly no difference at all in the prevalence of sexual abuse, eating disorders, or the influence of porn. Now, that's a really important one, because a lot of these parents of boys, they're told Okay, he's basically just a porn monster. It's your fault. Um, it's yeah. too late. Forget it. You know, he's not a gynophile. He's a porn monster and give up and go home. And, and, and lock, him, lock him up and get, yeah. get rid of him, please, parent. Yeah. It's very harsh what the parents are told. And, and there's a lot of things to say about that. I mean, for a start, let's imagine it's true. 
okay, well, he's 16. Like, what are you going to do? Like, throw him in a quarry? No, you know, you've got to do something. But there's also a lot of these parents who are saying, no, if anything, sexually, he's just nowhere. You know, these kids are like, intellectually, they're 27. Sexually, they're like nine. You know, they're just nothing. They're, they're lagging so far behind. So I think that is a unique challenge which is faced by the parents of the boys, not least because obviously we have the, so that there's this Blanchard, this idea that comes from Blanchard that ultimately the boys, young men who go through this are either hyper effeminate homosexuals or fetishistic autogynophiles. Now, because before the whole uh, ROGD moment, most transsexuals were male, it's obvious that there was more study of that phenomenon. And so it's quite difficult for parents to overcome that. It's quite difficult for parents. It's almost like the onus is on them to prove. Well, prove he's not an autogynophile. And this is precisely why we wanted to do this. Uh, you know, our, hypo- our hypothesis in the first episode was we think there's something completely different going on here that is not well classified by Blanchard's typology. Mm-hmm. And we we absolutely, well, I think it's very obvious that there is a type of social contagion that is possible in boys. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of build upon the backgrounds that you each have shared that have informed your perspectives I did a little number crunching and about 20% of parents who contact me have boys. And I've also, you know, after speaking with a little more than 400 parents, 20% of those are parents of boys. And I also saw the same thing. And interestingly, before our conversation, I wrote down, like, I want to talk about the math boys. That's a whole Mm -hmm. cohort is Mm -hmm. mathematically brilliant boys Mm -hmm. and boys who are sexually very behind their peers and the influence of female friends. So maybe we can start digging into what you ended up discovering throughout all of this research, talking to parents. Let's maybe pick out one of those characteristics and dig into the psychology a bit. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, almost like asking me which kind of piece of spaghetti I want to start eating. And I'm like, I don't even, there's so much, you know, you don't quite know where to start. Um, There's some really interesting things. There's, for example, a lot of, there's this theory that I talk about. I think it's the guy's name is Casimir, that if you've got more cognitive activity, you've probably got more neurological activity. So, the old-fashioned way of putting this, which risks sounding insulting, is neurotic, right? I mean, a neurotic person, as in, if there's a ticking clock, you can be as smart as you like, but these boys, if they notice there's a ticking clock, they fixate on it, and then it's over. You know, some of them have weird clothing things, like they don't want things that are too tight or too soft or too something in one direction or another. Um, Certainly very high IQ. So there have been a number of surveys which have been done within parent groups for boys which find that, you know, these boys are coming out, they're all north of 130, which is challenging, yeah, challenging territory anyway for a parent to have to deal with. Um, I would say that socially a lot of them are kind of behind, a little bit awkward, not very comfortable with their own skin, um, can I can we pause because mm. you mentioned Casimir? Are you talking about the theory of positive disintegration by Casimir Dabrowski? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I've said that. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I think this is interesting because it's reminding me of how sometimes the trans identification will directly proceed, which we touched on last time, a kind of rift or like a breakup oh. with a girlfriend or some trauma. kind of big trauma or a loss. Um, and so is that something that parents corroborated in your research? Yeah. It was like a precipitating event. Yes, not always, but nearly always. It was kind of like, it, it was usually a break in a friendship group. It was usually that a number of friends, either they moved away or for some reason they had some silly teenage thing or something else happened where the kid was moved from one class to another or from one sports team to another. And that this just hit at the same time as puberty as well. And so all these things came together. So there's definitely that traumatic element, but you know, what counts as trauma, that can be lots of different things. And sometimes I'm not mm. trying to detract from the, from the depth of the feelings, but you know, in, in hindsight, in 20 years time, it's not really trauma in the same way that, you know, like the loss of a leg would be trauma, but yeah. it feels traumatic. That brings to mind the ticking clock that somebody can experience something and it can really go very deep and you can look at it thinking that that wasn't that big, yeah. but for them it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and in the theory of positive disintegration, it can be something that to another child doesn't really cause much of a, you know, a storm in their life. But for this one kid, it causes almost like a personality disintegration or an mm -hmm. identity confusion or just this launch into an existential crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think that with the boys, I mean, I know less about the girls, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but I do feel like this is a very existential phenomenon with the boys and a little bit less social. So just briefly to return to what you were saying, you were saying 20% of the people coming to you are parents of boys. I wonder if there isn't a hidden number of boys who are not doing this so publicly. They're not telling them. They've just told yeah. mum or they've just told mum and they've told their best friend. And so they're maybe not getting to the point where they're in the, uh, in, in the search for therapy or they're, you know, slightly more public with this. So I do wonder if that's this, this gap that we're seeing between boys and girls in terms of number of presentations. I do wonder if part of it is this idea of like it being very private for some of these young men, very existential, much less, social much less almost i want to say almost like much less woke you know it's it's much less signaled to the world yeah. sometimes sometimes and very much being nurtured in their bedroom yeah. yeah yeah and in front of the screen yeah nearly all in front of the screen i mean I if you took the screen out the three of us you know we wouldn't have much to talk about this as so much of this is internet driven say more about that well um very often these young men are very much online people anyway. They're gamers. They're, they're, you know, some of them are drawing art and they're kind of, you know, they're in these various communities. They're on Reddit, they're on Discord, they're on Snapchat, they're on Tumblr, they're on all these different services. And they're very technically skilled on the computers. I mean, that's something that I've noticed. These oh, are boys yeah. who know their way around a computer Which very is, well. Yeah, I mean, the parent, like, if you want to talk about parental filters, I mean, I don't want to say forget it, but I'm close to saying forget it because these kids are so smart. And they're also very creative, a lot of these boys. Some of them are actually quite artsy. They're quite, um, they're quite funny. I mean, because a few parents have kind of shown me, like, the little memes he comes up with or something. And you mm -hmm. think, hey, you know, he's really funny. You know, they're very, so yeah. Mm -hmm. 
There's a sweetness about the boys, as far as I can gather. There's a real sweetness and they're often very connected with their mothers. But I do want to say before, uh, just something about the parental controls. The boys are often that little bit older. And Mm -hmm. uh, so some of the girls, let's say the parents of girls that I know, like there might be 11, 12, 13, parental controls really have a huge place at that age. Just in case okay. everybody throws out their <laughs> parental controls, they have a place. But when the when the kid is sixteen and he's a boy and he's very techy, no, you won't get very far. Yeah, and they, well, the other thing to say is that in the last year, because of COVID, um, a lot of schools are actually providing notepads and they they're sending notepads home. And parents have made this assumption like, well, okay, I mean that's a school notepad, so that surely that's going to be somehow controlled. Turns out, no. Um, so there's that element of it. So to go back to the, the internet, that's where they start off. And there is this very curious path, which was very, I didn't see coming at all, which kind of goes gaming to anime to female avatar to a particular, uh, one or two particular fora where they go in and they say, you know, why do I feel like this? Or why do I, you know, they ask these questions and they get bombarded with this answer because you're trans. And then that is the lily pad from which they can jump onto any other number of internet-based services, some of which are actually quite sinister. Um, so I didn't see this anime link at all. Um, when uh, when I first heard this, I thought, "What are you What are you talking about?" Like anime to me was like Saturday morning cartoons. Just happened to be <laughs> like happened to be Jan- Japanese style animation, and oh, so there's it, that link as well. When, when it comes up, I want you to continue, but just to jump in, when when it comes up in the parent groups, you can see a lot of parents at the start saying, "No, the anime is great. Anime part of their life is great. It's great. That's actually the one good thing about their life." And yeah. and uh, the all the other kind of more. <laughs> wizened veteran parents oh, <laughs> I'll tell you stories about anime um, one of I mean uh, the parents a couple of parents I was talking to you know they've been in this for like three four years they're really engaged they're running support groups and I mentioned this one anime game and they said oh my god that's what he was playing when this all started so you know even they who'd been in this for so long didn't quite know all of the details um Another thing which I found fascinating was that two of the young men that I came across had picked the same female name. Why? Because it's a cartoon character. Um, so they're, they're really crafting these personae for themselves, but they're not authentic. They're actually kind of cadged in some sense. It's kind of like copied, copying being this cartoon character. And that, yeah, that fascinated me. You know, I, I have a very dear friend who knows a young man who's going through this. And the friend of mine has no information whatsoever about ROGD or gender dysphoria. He's a very thoughtful, intellectual person, and he himself is kind of gender nonconforming. And he was telling me, you know, I started asking this young man, well, tell me more about this female version of your identity, expecting this really deep conversation about femininity. And and he said it was so superficial and it was so much about appearance and names and pronouns. And he was surprised because this young man is off the charts brilliant, just like the boys you know about. And he's incredibly intelligent and deep. 
And he expected this really profound discussion of male and female, but it wasn't <laughs> that. It was a very superficial, almost cartoon-like thing. And I, I find it interesting about the avatars because that's usually the first experimentation is like just picking an avatar for a game that is a girl avatar or a girly screen name and starting to posture in these online forums like Reddit. Mm-hmm. And I think I get curious about, you know, is there a way that teenage boy sexuality is overlapping with these sexy gaming characters? And does it just kind of scramble up everything yeah. for the boy? I wonder about that. It's kind of like trying to nail honey to the ceiling because this this sort of girl that they create in their minds, she seems able to kind of slip between the highly sexual and the totally infantile and back again in a way which is impossible to capture. So one minute you think, oh, this is fine. This is just like, okay, so it's just like a girl cartoon character. It seems very infantile. It seems very innocent. It's very pink. And then the next minute it's really, really extremely, not just quite explicit, but quite degrading to the concept of what a woman is. I mean, I think there's something very interesting in what you just said, because they're so used, these parents, to these kids being super smart and, you know, just after the dinner table having to think, right, now I've got to go and find out more about the Kuiper belt, because that's another part of the solar system I now have to understand in order to communicate with my son. And so when they then ask, why do you want to be a woman? They expect, or why do you think you are a woman or whatever it is, they expect a proper answer and what they get it's like it's like a joke i mean a couple of people have actually said i thought it was a practical joke um so one of the ones in the first story i told was um that she asked this very intelligent boy you know why do you want to be a woman he said because he likes lesbian porn and rom-coms i mean that's a hell of a reason to be infertile and never have a natural orgasm for the rest of your life you know, it's it's pretty astonishing that their their thinking is all over the place in that sense. You said before about the concept of I know I always pronounce it wrong, the folkadio. <laughs> we were having a conversation about can we yeah the uh fach idiot. So fach is um gotta be careful how you say it. Fach <laughs> is subject and idiot is idiot, so this is a German word and uh so a subject idiot a fach idiot is like he can tell you in great detail about the fall of the byzantine empire but then he'll trip over his shoes you know or you can it's this mismatch and i think this is something which is not exclusively male but when you meet people like this it's usually a guy who's like this usually they end up in academia they're, and they're really, really smart, but, you know, they can't they necessarily be trusted to have taken their bicycle clips off or, or something like this, you know? And that's, and I think that there's a a point about this moment that we're in where we used to have people who were male role models who weren't necessarily feminine, but there were sort of cognitive male role models. And that appears to be disappearing now. And I think that that's part of the problem here. I think that's such a good point. I think that's such a good point. I also think that these boys are wondering if you both agree with me. 
while I think some of them are pro- probably hypersexualized, I think they're all innocent. If you follow me, that th- there's an innocence to a lot of them. You can be you can be hypersexualized and innocent at the same time if you follow me, because I'm talking about that slightly. They don't know they're not worldly. If yeah. you follow me, but that's what I mean about the innocence, as opposed to sexually innocent. I'm talking about that. There's a there's a lack of worldliness to them that you just think. Sometimes they might tell me somebody they're talking to, and you know they're going to get a great job in Google or something. I'm, I'm like, all right, will you? <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? That somebody online they'd be talking to, and who's I, I I you know like who's you know giving up great riches because they just want to hang out with people online on Reddit. And it's like, oh right, really? Right. <laughs> so right? It's, it's innocence, I think. The, so one of the one of the stories I told, which is actually a, a horrible story, um, this boy would, met this this older guy online, and and essentially the line was given to him that it's like, well, I could have been a Hollywood star, but I gave it all up to, you know, help young people. And it's like, if you fall for that, you are pretty socially backward. I mean, there are lots of 13 and 14 year olds who could hear that and just would laugh out loud and move on. You know, they would see through it. Um, So yeah, there is an innocence to it. And I think that it's complicated because I totally agree 100% with the many, many feminist campaigners who've pointed out how degrading some of these images of womanhood are that are involved in this construction of the female self that many young men who are going through this have. But as you say, they're not worldly. They don't have this knowledge. They don't have the information to access that, to be able to understand that. So in many ways, I do think a lot of this is because they talk, you know, in schools, they talk so much about sexuality and gender identity and all the rest of it, and yet they don't have a frame of reference to understand this. So I always think it's like covering a child in water wings and giving them six months' lessons on drowning and the dangers of drowning and then putting them in a puddle and they're completely paralyzed. They they know so much about what sexualities are, what gender identities are, but many of them, I don't think they've actually got much going on sexually. So they're, they're all over the place in that sense. I think there's also a common thread I see is just these boys have really, really low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And I think to to reflect on the idea of a person online saying I I left my Hollywood career to help people like you it's almost like what we know about child sex predators they will prey on kids with a low self-esteem they will and I think a lot of times these boys are so self-conscious and many of them struggle tremendously with social anxiety and they're willing to put everybody else up on this kind of pedestal and they're willing to degrade themselves in a way that I get really curious about the ones who have been dabbling in some of this degrading fetishistic porn or these degrading portrayals of trans women. If they're kind of the self-deprecation is a part of this unfortunate story. Yes. So, I mean, in all of this, one of the things which I realized and it's very uncomfortable, but I think it's got to be spoken about. There's an elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is predatory men, what we used to call maybe predatory homosexual, maybe predatory bisexual, but whatever they are, they're predatory. 
And now they kind of have this ability because of the, the moment that we live in to drape the rainbow flag, to drape the pink and blue and white flag over themselves and say, well, I'm a member of the queer community. I'm a trans woman. Now, of course, if you're not, you know, if you're not going to introduce some kind of test that says, well, you, you actually have to do, so, you know, you actually have to be post-operative to say you're a trans woman. It's not just a label you can use. So we don't know who these men are. And a lot of parents suspect peer-to-peer contact between older predatory men. Um, a couple have evidence of it. Now, I think that in most cases that comes at the back end of this. It's not like these kids were just completely normal, going along, everything was fine, and then suddenly that made that They were already asking those questions. They were already in those fora, which unfortunately have no proper gatekeeping. Um, but we know this. I mean, we, gay men, we know this. We have no excuse. We know that in the 1970s, when there were, in the 80s, there were these gay rights campaigns and paedophiles came along and said, you know, hooray, gay rights, open brackets, also paedophiles, close brackets. They always want to jump in. It's a very oh. uncomfortable thing to talk about, but with it's, I think that it's much, much easier for them to do that now. I do want to point out, you're a gay man. And yes. Yeah, because in a way we have to use that as a shield because we're not allowed to speak about it unless... It's somebody, it feels like that. Anyway, yeah, so no, no, it's, it's absolutely that yeah. like that. And it, even in my case, it'll be like, okay, so so what's going on with him then? Bit of internalized homophobia that, you know, you get all of these kinds of accusations. Um, but we're not good at talking about it. Um, and my fear is if we go on just kind of ignoring this, particularly when these young men are kind of, they're getting themselves through this gaming stuff into this trans identity. But then, as you rightly say, Sasha, they're then somebody's coming along and saying things like, you know, I mean, if I um, ever want to cut myself, sometimes it's a good thing to do to do it because it might make you feel better later. Okay. There's no version of a decent human being who says that to a child. It's that's non-negotiable or even worse stuff. I mean, there's some pretty nasty stuff in all of this. And my fear is that if we just sit back and do nothing, the backlash is going to be enormous. So the, the further the pendulum goes up, the more force and weight it will have when it comes back down. And it risks taking out all sexual minorities, including people who have nothing to do with this and are very much against any kind of sexual exploitation of anyone, particularly a child. So, I do feel very strongly that I do have a responsibility to talk about it. It's tough, but if I can't, who can? And I've heard you talk about the kind of the, what would they be called, the chat rooms of among gay men, that it is very explicit, it is very direct, and it can be very um, very shocking for, for a young boy who stumbles in there. And I can see why the young boys stumble in there, and it's very sexualized. Well, it's been a while for me because I've been in the relationship for a decade. So uh, uh, my information might not be that current, but it is pretty, you know, it, it can be quite brutal because it's only men, right? Nobody's dancing around anything. So, I mean, I, going back, you know, you would just get spammed. I, I remember being spammed with messages that just, sorry to, to be slightly explicit, but it would just, the message would just say seven inches plus question mark. I mean, that's how they say hello. It's, it's really kind of brutal in some of these communities. And I think that 
I get for the younger ones who want to kind of have like the protection of a female group, because if they, if they are homosexual, they don't want to go into that world. And unfortunately the gay dating scene has been very, very bad at keeping out people who are like that. So even on the sites, which uh, again, I should clarify that my information might be out of date, even on the sites that are much more reputable and much larger, you do find people doing all sorts of explicit stuff in a way that I think you probably wouldn't on straight dating sites. And we're not good at talking about it. Let's talk about the, the kind of way that these boys end up relating to their own sexuality, because I, I suspect from parents I've talked to and boys that I know of, there may initially be a period where these boys claim to be bisexual or even question maybe whether or not they're gay, though over the trajectory of time, many of them end up either being bisexual or straight. And I, I wonder if that's something you've heard, because I know you interviewed parents over in a relatively limited period of time, but I often hear back from families that I consult with. And this seems to be a pattern. And I think it has something to do with the way sexual identity labels just mean something very different these days. And if you are wondering as a male, if you're really a girl, then it might make sense for you to be attracted to men. So maybe you're bisexual, maybe you're a gay, you know. So it's just, I wonder about that. Have you seen that? Yeah, definitely. The bisexuality is almost obligatory now at this point. It's, and I think a lot of these young people, I genuinely think bisexuality is, it's almost a form of courtesy. It's almost like it's polite. Like if I said to you, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a homosexual. It's like, well, it's almost akin to saying that you're sexually potentially sexually repulsive to me. And so we're seeing this rocketing number of young people who are bisexual. The parents never take it seriously. It's like, well, he's never been kissed. What do you mean bisexual? You know, it's like, <laughs> okay, maybe he's, maybe he's seen certain porn, but that's not a good indicator. You know, they want these kids, they want them to have relationships. They want them to get out there into the world and integrate themselves in some sense. Um, and I think that very often, yeah, they do kind of, end up drifting towards basically in most cases just being straight in a few cases just being gay maybe a couple of bisexuals but it sorts itself out i think there's something interesting that goes on that's different between the boys and the girls in the survey i did i found that a lot of the neo stuff is more female the omnisexual they pronoun all of that stuff in many ways, I wonder if the girls are almost fleeing from categories, liberating themselves from categories, whereas the boys, I feel like they're almost kind of idolizing categories in some way. They've idolized this category of woman. Of course, it's not a woman. You know, it's it's a Japanese cartoon character. But So I do think there's a difference there when it comes to the sexuality as well, because I think you do hear a bit less um, of this, well, frankly, stuff that's a little bit difficult to take seriously, like, you know, omnisexual and pansexual and all of these new asexual. Yeah. I've yet to find out what that one means. But, you know, that tends to be more female, I think. Gender fawn, I heard recently. 
Uh, <laughs> just lovely. Um, I, I do think that that some of the boys. I heard you say this, Angus, and I think I heard you say it, Sasha. Something along the lines of the girls are are often influenced, obviously, by the internet and also by their girl group. And the boys are influenced, obviously, by the internet and by a girl group as well. And, you know, if you know your history and if you know your, your, your history of psychology, you'd know contagion spreads between girls. Mm-hmm. And these boys are generally the contagion is from the girls as opposed mm-hmm. to the boys. So it's, it's kind of an interesting point. It's the girl groups. Whether mm-hmm. you're a boy or a girl, it'll be the girl group from where the contagion spreads. And then further, the girl cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And so many parents in the GDSN group, so many parents <laughs> said, there's one girl, there's one girl, and she's mm-hmm. leading it. And of course, mm-hmm. she's bi. Yeah, you know? inevitably, she's oh. always, she's yeah. always bi. Very occasionally, I suppose, she might be a lesbian. I mean, to take those two things in turn, I think that the group is really interesting because what they're getting when they enter into these female groups is they're getting a packaged identity. It's kind of like, do you remember Sex and the City? And there was the kind of cosmopolitan, slightly cynical journalist one, and there was the slightly neurotic lawyer one, and the slightly innocent, naive one, and the sex bomb one. And now the way that these young groups of of women are working, it's like, well, there's the Hispanic one, and there's the one who's bisexual, and they all have a thing. You know, they all have to have a label, um, one of the mothers I uh, interviewed, she and her husband call this this young man's friends the Island of Misfit Toys, just because, which I loved, because they've all got like a little something, and he gets to be the trans one. So he's gone from being no one to having this role, which is really vital, and it's like. You have to, if you watch Sex in the City, you expect to see all four women. If you watch the Spice Girls on stage, it's like, well, there's only four of them. Where's the other one? You know, they, they, they're slotting into this predefined thing. And there's very little reason when you think of it like that. Of course, we know actually down the line, there are lots of reasons to be quite skeptical, skeptical about going down this path. But there's very little reason in that moment not to do it. It's like, okay, suddenly like, Two people are asking me out to do something on a Saturday rather than zero. Um, sorry, go on. And if you, if you go from being this incredibly smart, awkward boy who in today's youth culture doesn't really have a lot of appeal to all of a sudden the token trans girl that everybody wants to dress up and braid your hair and include you in everything. And now all of a sudden kids who are, kind of mean to you are like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're so brave. There's a lot of of temptation in that if you are a young boy who fits this this kind of characteristic from before. Right. And one of the interesting things that came up a couple of times was sometimes these girls will be quite hostile to the boys' parents and quite they'll make a big thing out of it. Like, you know, they, they have to put the mascara on the boy in the house, they have to come round to his house and they make it, and they're very loud, you know, that they'll say, she, really yeah. pointedly. Um, they'll address letters to the home where the female name is like in three times the size letters as the yeah. rest of the address. And who sends letters anyway? I mean, yeah. in the year 2021. Um, 
then you have the cheerleader who is really like the one who's really pushing it. And very often these mothers have, let's say not a lot of good things to say about that young woman. Um, and it really is, I mean, I've heard you two speak about this. It's kind of like a doll. It's kind of like having a mannequin that you can dress up, but it, it is in some ways it's a very cruel relationship because it's difficult to envision these young women settling down with the end product that they've created. You don't get the sense that they're particularly invested in this human being over the course of, let's say, decades. It's kind of a bit of a toy. But I will say that I think we do also need to talk about, well, why are those young women doing that? What's in, you know, they're trying to look for meaning. So I think that a lot of this is about a quest for meaning in a world which is increasingly meaningless from their point of view. And so I don't want to throw young women who are doing that under the bus entirely, that their parents are very often quite angry with these influential cheerleader characters. But at the same time, we need to understand what motivates them, like what's in it for them, because there's something in it for them. They're steeped in the same kind of ideas that a lot of the young people are are buying into. And so if you put yourself in the perspective of that young girl, she probably thinks she's freeing a trans girl from the oppressive structures of the parents who are denying who she really is. And, you know, perhaps the friend is seeing how happy this young man is when she does you know, give him attention and fawn over him. I mean, there is something really powerful that is happening for both people. I don't think these young women are malicious at all. I think most likely they are probably other kids that we might consult, you know, whose parents we consult with. They they themselves are going through something really challenging. They think they're saving the boys. They think they're saving and they've got a cause and they, they think they're doing the be- the best thing they've ever done. And they're they're just akin to kind of the rescuer, and this is this glorious cause that's landed on their door that they didn't ask for, but that's just arrived, and they're going to they're going to roll yeah. their sleeves up and help. Yeah, but the the thing is, a lot of the time, you know, they get away with it. With you know, they off they go to college, and they've got uh, you know, they find a jaunt, jaunty hairstyle and some pronoun demands, and they're they're not taking hormones. They're not damaging their fertility. And it's the boy very often who's really locked in this all-consuming existential battle with categories. Ultimately, for a lot of these young men, it's a battle with categories. It's like there's this thing, woman, I want in. My life will be better once I'm in. And he's left kind of on the battlefield dealing with that. And she may have moved on. And I really think like when we one day kind of reflect on what happened in these in these these years that this this phenomenon took over, we'll be saying a certain type of personality was susceptible and vulnerable to this. The rule based kind of systematic thinker, the kind of very intelligent, naive. There's such a personality. We'll be just saying a certain personality. And if you happen to be the parent of that personality of a child and they're on the Internet a lot, well, they will have likely got involved in this. And that's really hard for the parents and for the families and for most of all for those kids. Yeah, and I would definitely, as I said at the beginning, I would definitely have have been such a person. I 
And I said that to my mother and she said, well, I don't know what I would have done. You know, I think that one of the things that we're going to see coming down the line in five, 10 years is a lot of parents who heard this, you know, 44% of them will kill themselves statistic and who, who took it at face value, which isn't true. It's completely debunked, bad science through and through for a number of different reasons. Um, And they took it at face value. And now I think a lot of them, you do see this certain type of activist who's really, it's the sunk cost fallacy and they're just going and they're really, really going for it. And I wonder if subconsciously it's because they're thinking, well, this had better, this had better be right. Because if it's not right, I've done this to my son for the wrong reasons and it is for life. And I think that there's going to have to, you know, therapists, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, where am I going to specialize in the next few years? Well, that might be a growth industry as well is the people who feel a tremendous amount of guilt for for going along with this um i find the the further i've got into this the more sympathy i have for everyone involved apart from certain canadian users of waxing parlors who don't need to be mentioned and um and certain pharmaceutical companies and uh, other massive corporations those do not have my sympathy but i think for a lot of these families they're they're just lost. They don't know what to do because we're not able to have these conversations openly and earnestly. I feel like I've depressed you there, Stella. Yeah, I just feel so. I just feel. I just feel so. I just feel families are being ripped up. I'm seeing it every week in the group meetings. I'm I'm seeing it among clients, and I think there's an awful lot of pain. And there's an awful lot of wretched loneliness and everybody is is lost in this. And I, I just feel, wow, wow. Like for those who are disengaged from it, I really think, man, like you've really got to enter in. I mean, if I can just say one of the first things I saw when I went into these parent communities onto the messaging boards is I saw this. I'll never forget this, this message from a woman whose daughter was planning a double mastectomy and she thought it was the wrong thing to do. She thought the daughter's, you know, very angry, obviously depressed. And this woman found a lump on her breast when she was in the shower. And she thought, thank God, hopefully I've got cancer so that then I can say to my daughter, you can't have a double mastectomy yet. I've got to have mine first. We can't afford it. And that to, to imagine that feeling of finding what you suspect might be cancer and thinking, hooray. And it's really, I mean, there's no way to say this without it sounding biblical. It's saying to the universe, take my breast so that my daughter can keep her. It's like a Bible story. There's it's, and so when you hear the way that some of these parents are described as like, well, you're a transphobe, you're backward. These parents, as you know, they have PhD level knowledge of what's going on. Um, they are so well informed. They've thought about this from every single angle that they can possibly think about it 50 times per angle. And so it really makes me angry when people describe them as as ignorant or as, you know, hateful or all the rest of it. It's, it's just not true. And I, I wish 
people could see these communities of parents in action because yeah. it's just incredible. One thing to say about it is if you want your diversity, your inclusion, and your equity, you should see these groups because they're yeah. politically diverse. You've got your Trump voters, you've got your Biden voters, you've got your this, that, religious diversity, all different parts of the country. People take an effort to include one another and to say, okay, you know, if I say such and such, is that going to alienate people from over here or over there? And the end result is equity. So this must be the only group of people that I've been working with, the only group in America who's actually got diversity, inclusion, and equity um, uh-huh. because they're working towards this very important higher goal. And it is kind of, I mean, I wrote today, I feel like I've joined the French resistance by mistake. It, it's These are amazing people. I remember one mother saying to me, when you said that biblical reference, I thought of her, she said, you know, because it was in the parents' meetings, and she said, you know, you know, in, in all the other generations, parents saw their, their, their young sons, she was talking about a son, heading off to war. And I never thought our generation would. And I feel like my, my kid has gone to war. He's gone. And I know he's going to come back and he's going to be, his body is going to be really like in a difficult way. You know what I mean? Because she knew what had, 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 had uh, he'd, the surgeries he's had and stuff. And I, at the time, I, I think the parents at the meeting, we were kind of, whoa. But like, you know, she I can see where she was coming from, really, you know. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think the other thing is that when you get to know detransitioners, a lot of them, it's like they have this incredible wisdom about them yeah. now. I mean, that's a paradox because, I mean, it's a hell of a way to get wisdom. I'm not recommending it. But they've really been on a huge journey in a very short space of time. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's easy when you're in this to forget that nearly all of the people that you're dealing with, they are smart. They are people who've got really interesting outlook on the world. Um, and they're not how they're portrayed very often. There's a couple of other things I wanted to kind of bring up and maybe to, to lighten it up a little bit before we all just disintegrate. (laughs) <laughs> you see, I don't feel like I, I find it. I'm very optimistic, but I can see I can see what you're saying. I usually am. But this conversation, I think it, it turned. I think we, <laughs> we felt bowed under it because we feel these are naive, innocent, lovely families that are, are really in trouble. And we I think we all know them. All three of us. We know them well. We know them deeply and we care but I, I do think there's a few kind of um, quirks about them that I do want to raise. We haven't mentioned autism, even though we've kind of made in passing reference to diagnosis. There's a massive connection with autism, I think, with with this cohort. Did you find that with, the, I think, 185 parents filled out your survey? Did you find this? Uh, yeah, uh, there was certainly, it's certainly way, way astronomically higher than the general presentation. It's also higher in the boys than it is in the girls. Although, as you know, you've got to be a bit careful with that one because it may be one of those phenomena that is easier to see in one sex than in the other. Um, I think that the autism link is interesting because a lot of, a, a, a lot of the time, the best way to put it is black and white thinking that they find some of these young people find nuance very, very difficult. And either you're this or you're that. And so therefore, if their presentation to the world in terms of how masculine or feminine they are or how macho or how sensitive, 
it's quite difficult for them to deal with being on on a line, being at the edge. They want to be in the middle of a category or just not in it at all. And yeah. so this hypothetical female version of the self that they've built, it's really accessible for them because they can put it in that category. And I think that that is an autism link. It's so far from where I was raised, where it was like all about the individual and freedom and you do you. Mm. you They're like, give me my categories, feed me my categories. Mm. I've heard of like, uh, I wonder, will will you have heard, but I know you have, Sasha, like of, let's say, you know, they're these boys and they're, they're trans and they're trans girls and they identify as trans girls and then they get a girlfriend and they say they're lesbians and, and, and the parents are going, but this is a straight yeah. relationship. They're having yeah. sex. And like the, the, the trans girl is like, no, we're lesbians. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And <laughs> the parents are kind of like literally thinking, but they're actually having penis and vagina sex. And this yeah. is lesbianism. And I, I, like it, it absolutely fries people. I feel this is quite generational because I don't think this knocks a feather out of this younger generation. No, no, no. It's it's all very, it's kind of everything just has become abstract. And I do think that that is the internet. I think that is this kind of deletable, repurposed kind of thing, you know. I mean, I painted something about a year ago. Uh, Just, you know, I kind of put down the cloth on the table and I got the paints out. I'm terrible. And I painted something and and then I did the wrong thing. And I felt my hand twitch for command Z to undo it. (laughs) I felt my hand twitch. You know, this whole, we're completely different. It's like a totally different species. And I think that, you know, they've, they've grown up with, avatars where they can just delete it if it goes wrong they can just delete it they can tweak it they can amend it and they think of everything is kind of abstracted from themselves to the point where they're talking about having a puberty which is kind of like having a dessert like you know i've heard it discussed in the from the perspective of like as though the body is this completely neutral vessel like well if i have to have a puberty or if i have to have Mm -hmm. hormones i might as well pick the ones i want Mm -hmm. And that abstraction is really is really something. One thing I really want to raise before this uh, interview finishes, because it's something I feel very strongly about and it's not being lifted, is the role of the fathers. Mm. And I know with the GDSN meetings, like we see many, 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 many mothers. Every so often we see fathers, but it's really noticeable that uh, the, the fathers are not as present. And I think you, you've had a similar um, experience. I think both of you have. Is that right? It's certainly, it's certainly true in my case. And I think that, the, I mean, it's not always this way. Sometimes the pattern flips, but usually it's the case that the mother is beside herself and saying, you know, look, look at this research, kind of holding out this wadge of, of research papers. And, and the father is saying, it'll be fine, or I don't want to deal with it, or he'll work through it, or something like this. There's a somehow a detachment. It does sometimes flip, and I want to be careful about this because I know it's very personally annoying to fathers who are the ones who are very, very invested, and the mother is actually the one saying, it'll be fine, don't worry about it. I think that 
One of the things is, I mean, I'm no scholar of feminism, um, but there is this idea that, you know, I guess you would associate it with the Greer and the Palia type figures that feminism didn't exist just to heap a whole bunch of tasks onto women's plates and not talk about what's already on the plate. And I think a lot of the time these men feel like if they impose any kind of anything which even smells like discipline, then they are the tyrant. They are this tyrannical male figure. And so they find it very difficult to step up and take responsibility and to lay down the lines. And what that does is it puts the mother in the position where she's good cop and bad cop. She's carrot and stick. She's doing everything because the father feels like if he intervenes, it's just going to make it worse because then it's going to be like, oh, okay, so you're uh, the patriarchal LGBT-hating toxic male monster. And so the woman ends up doing everything. But, of course, this is not a terribly sustainable thing. A lot of these women are exhausted. They are exhausted. They are just completely fried. And part of me does want to kind of say, God, I wish I could just get into your house and say, where's the dad? You know, but he's there. Yeah. The two two types of dads I've mostly noticed, not always, and you're right with the caveats, that some of them are fabulous and very, very engaged. But the two types I've noticed is one, either laissez-faire, listen, it's just a phase, don't worry about it. And it's like, yeah, well, I hope so, but it mightn't be, you know, it's, it certainly feels a little bit convenient and maybe a little bit lazy in the context of the stories we're hearing. And the second is a downright, I cannot accept this, keep it away from me, I don't want to know, and I reject it all. And basically the mother is, is is often kind of almost defending the child because and keeping it a secret because the, the father will just reject the entire thing wholesale and basically say, get out. I, I'm not interested. I, I don't want to deal with this. I've, I've seen the two quite prominent. And in the context of the whole family system, I also think sometimes when mom is so distressed and coming on so strong with the gender stuff, Sometimes the dad kind of has to hold this more neutral pole or else the kid will kind of have no reprieve. Sometimes moms are trying to constantly talk to their child about gender and are researching ROGD constantly. And so I think sometimes there there has to be a little bit of a, a balance here. And that's not always the case. But I, I think sometimes the dads are trying to hold a more neutral side of the story. And, and it ends up sometimes that dad is the one who kids will talk to a little bit more freely because they have taken this more relaxed position. And I, I wonder if this is true in your research, Angus, but I do think that a lot of times these are boys who historically have been real mama's boys and really sweet boys who are very attached to their mother. And this seems to be an important way that they're attempting to say, I can do things my own way. And it's ironic because the same boys who are making these giant claims about their gender identity and making proclamations about, you know, hormones are too afraid to say, you know, no, I don't want to empty the dishwasher tonight. They right. have to empty the dishwasher. If parents right. ask them to, they have to do it. So there's something about the the taking responsibility for oneself that I think they're trying to attain through this very subversive identity, which is clearly making mom 
you know, beside herself with anxiety. I mean, there are so, there's like a stampede of elephants in the room that we can't mention. And one of them in all of this, and maybe I'm bouncing off in a funny direction here, is suburbia. I saw some research recently which said that if you live in like American McMansion suburbia, your spatial awareness is lower. You have fewer friends. You can't draw a map. Like if you, if you say like draw the map of between your house and the school and you get like a line. Whereas if it's an inner city kid and they'll give you like, well, here's where the baker is. And then I walk under this bridge and they've got twice as many friends. So I think maybe there's an, an aspect of this where the physical environment is just really difficult for young people to take responsibility, to get out there because, you know, they need to drive, like to get anywhere that isn't just another house, they need to drive, um, which means they need to be driven, of course. So I do think that the further we get into the study of this, the more somebody is going to have to look at physical environment the the motion of the body through the physical environment. What is the shape of the house? What is the shape of the land? Where are things? Where are friends? Where are schools? Where are all the rest of it? Particularly because we know that these young men, they're dissociated from their bodies. They're, or at least they're, they're making some claim, which I think has something in it. And so I would wager that if you were living in let's say let's say if you were living in the center of a city like york you know a very walkable or some center of a city like edinburgh compared to one of those sprawling kind of suburban everything everyone lives in a cul-de-sac you have to drive everywhere i do wonder if this is happening more because of that physical space i think that is fascinating yeah, it's, 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 I mean, we could talk about this for like 50 weeks, as you know, it goes off in lots of different directions, but I'd love to look into that. I, I want to just touch on this really quickly, because I think when we are able to take physical risks in childhood with play, you get to take ownership of your body, you get to experience um kind of playing with yourself, with physical space and playing with your surroundings. And I think part of what I see with this gender identity boom in young people is that the locus of where they get to take risks has gotten so narrow that the place they take risks is with their personal identity. Yeah, and, so and online as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. You're so right. I just, I, I kind of studied this a lot in my first book, Cottonwell Kids, and it's called The Radius of Activity. And the child's radius of activity has been massively reduced in the last 40 years. Like, unbelievable. So it's gone from, let's say, six miles to four miles to two miles to 200 meters. You know, it's really, really reduced to how much, how far they can play. And you're right, Sasha, the more constrained a person is a, a ch- an adolescent is a ch- an adolescent has a kind of a, a formative need a developmental need to take risks and the more constrained they are and the less risks they're taking in their physical life the more risk they will take online and in their identity in their cerebral life if you follow me and that's literally what's going on it's not lost on me too that as i've read through informal surveys parents have done Almost all of them report that their sons were never interested in physical sports or physical activities. And that's another arena where we learn how to take risks and do 
kind of uh, slightly dangerous things is through sport and through activity. So I just think there are so many aspects of these boys' characters and their lifestyle and their living environments that have almost made this too easy to fall into. I think of the parents that I did the in-depth interviews with, two of the boys were involved in sport, which is a pretty low number given like American boys are pretty sporty. Um, so I certainly, I, I would agree with all of that. I'm just coming back to this idea of risk. It would be interesting to look at child order in all of this, because we know that risk changes with child order. We know that if you're the youngest of seven, then your whole way that you process risk is probably going to be different from if you're the oldest of two, or certainly if you're an only child. So I'd love to look into that as well at some point. So would I. There's so much, there's so much, there's so much to talk about. But if you were to finish, is there anything last that you'd like to comment about this world, about, about everything about the work that you've done? Because you've certainly arrived on the scene with a, with a flash. (laughs) Well, Uh, Yeah, I would. I mean, I would like to say publicly in a way that I've just not had an opportunity to, to say thank you to these people who let me in. You know, they really took this enormous risk. They told me these highly personal details. And it's been such a privilege getting to know them and working with them. It's without question the most rewarding thing I've done in my life. I only started and the first interview was December the 21st. So, you know, like I say, it's a roller coaster, but I I want to thank them for putting their trust in me. And, and I also just want to get it out there that there may be some people who perhaps in the past have been a wee bit dismissive of the boys, a little bit too ready to say it's autogynophilia, they're perverts. And I would say to those people, you know what, we're all on a learning curve with this and I don't think they should ever feel bad I think that they you know we all I think as we've gone through this journey have said things which maybe now in hindsight we would say yeah I'm not quite sure I would have phrased it that way now and so I hope that what can come out of the work I've done is more of an understanding but without anyone feeling like they've done the wrong thing because the main thing is now to get the knowledge out there so that people can see that these parents have been vilified and it's without reason and these young men have so much to offer the world they are such brilliant people and their parents are pretty brilliant as well and so it's just that's why ultimately i'm optimistic because i think the the levels of intelligence in these groups are off the charts so one way or another you know we're going to get the right outcome thanks for joining us this week on gender a wider lens this podcast is partially sponsored by rhyme rethink identity medicine ethics rhyme is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender variant individuals visit rethinkime.org to learn more if you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 